Hi guys, I'm Dan Al-Hanbali and this is Something to Consider. So today we're doing things a bit differently. As you know that each of the podcasts are usually structured around a script that I put together that is based around topics related to my entrepreneurial journey. But the more I thought about it, the more I felt like if I wanted to really generate the kind of depth I envisioned for something to consider, guests would eventually be involved, especially when it came to the notion of me trying to find different ways to consider specific topics. That being said, I feel very privileged that my first guest today actually agreed to come on the show at the very early stages of its development. It really reaffirms my impression of this person to begin with, from his humility as a human being to his commitment to his mission of educating and sharing his knowledge of mental health with the rest of the world, whether it's through his own platforms or his business. My first guest is one of the most sought after bilingual speakers within his field across the MENA region. He's held numerous leadership positions within Kuwait's public sectors in education and medicine. He's a diplomate of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. He's the chief medical officer at TMS NextGen in Dubai. And lastly, but certainly, certainly not least, he is the founder and medical director of Mindwell Clinic in Kuwait, which has been offering various treatments and counseling services for mental health for the past seven years. Dr. Mohamed Suedan, thank you and welcome to Something to Consider. Thank you so much. It's an honor, and that was a very kind introduction. Thank you. So much. Honestly, it was just a quarter of, of what you, we should be saying about you, because okay. you really do stand out um, as someone in this profession. And if I'm being very honest, uh, someone who has very much been open about kind of sharing the vulnerable side of this business. Uh, it's the first time that I really ever interacted with a man talking about the topics that you talked about very publicly yeah. and within the setting of entrepreneurs. So it's quite nice. Ah, thank you. I, I think part of that comes from a background of having lived in different places, experienced different cultures and knowing what it's like to be an outsider. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, not just for me, for any person that goes through that, you may relate to this is mm -hmm. uh, you develop a sense of empathy and yeah. a sense of uh, hopefully humility and um, wanting to have a mission and give in that mission. Well, I can definitely attest to, to sensing that from you from the day that we met. When it comes to this specific topic, what I'd like to discuss is mental health in the entrepreneurship space. Mm -hmm. um, I think what I'd like people to get out of this conversation is how and when do we actually start to think about getting help, mm. um, especially when there's such a stigma around this idea of getting help, yeah. um, not just for entrepreneurs, but really people in leadership positions. And what's interesting about you is that you not only are within the field, you're an entrepreneur yourself. I guess I've become one, <laughs> unintentionally. <laughs> unintentionally. Oh, so the ambition wasn't to have a clinic of your own? Well, it was, but, you know, uh, as a doctor, sometimes the ambition to have a clinic of your own, the drive is not entrepreneurial as much as it is um, I want to practice medicine at a larger scale or at a more independent scale. Okay. And so as doctors, I think a lot of us are trained in minimizing risk, which is not an entrepreneurial spirit, right? Mm. Um, but then you realize when you're doing a clinic on your own, oh, this is a business, right? So I have to run it now efficiently, but how do I run it without compromising my clinical care? And so you have to develop strategies and form uh, an organization that takes care of that so you can still focus on your craft. Uh, wow. that's, that's a tough part of being... Uh, a business person in medicine. Yeah, yeah. I imagine so. Yeah. Um, then I guess it's a great place to kind of start with my kickoff question. What actually got you into this industry? Um, because you have a couple of different degrees. You specialize in mood disorders, but you're mm -hmm. also a psychiatrist and psychology is what you do in your business. So 
Yeah, so uh, I'll walk you through that. So I, I trained in medicine. Okay. Uh, so I have a bachelor's in medicine and surgery. And uh, I was always interested in the brain. So I wanted to be a neurosurgeon uh, at first because I thought, well, what's the most difficult brain specialty, neurosurgery? Uh, when I did my rotation in neurosurgery, I didn't like the, um, it just wasn't for me. I didn't like the outcomes with patients. I didn't like the lifestyle of a surgeon. And uh, so I explored a number of different brain specialties until I happened uh, upon psychiatry. Usually medical students in your final years and then also when you're graduating is when you're deciding what am I going to do for my residency? What kind of doctor am I going to be? And uh, then I went to Canada and trained in psychiatry. And mood disorders is a subspecialty within psychiatry. So after I finished my psychiatry training after medical school, then I decided to subspecialize within mood and anxiety disorders. And then I did a master's of public health, which is very different because it takes you from the individual. So all doctors focus on the individual and on the acute, which means when a person is sick, how do I diagnose that illness? And then how do I treat that illness? And um, that's really important. Uh, it serves a role. But it can be sometimes short-sighted. Um, we don't focus in medicine generally until recently on preventative medicine uh, and larger scale issues like not only nutrition and exercise and so on, but even larger scales issues like how do we build our societies in a way that the built and the social environment promote health. Um, so that's what I learned in, in public health school. Wow. And that really helped me when I came back in serving not only patients, but then in large organizations that serve healthcare. How do you uh, bring that spirit of looking at it from a very macro vision into promoting health, uh, in, in my case, mental health? Mm. Yeah. But like this fasc fascination with the brain, I mean, did yeah. that come from something specific growing up? Um, because I'm yeah. definitely fascinated with it now. Right. After I've gone through all of the necessary breakdowns that I needed to, to get to this yeah. space where I'm educating myself. But yeah. you started quite young. Yeah, I guess when I was a kid, I, you know, whenever my uh, parents or relatives asked me, what do you want to do when you grow up? And my answer was always a scientist. I, okay. I always was interested in science. Uh, I'd have chemistry kits growing up and so on. But I didn't know what kind of scientist. And I was always a people person. Uh, so when I came close to graduating high school, I thought, well, what's in science and then still works with people and has somewhat of a art to it. And, you know, I thought, well, medicine, medicine is, you know, and I had the grades to get into it. So I, I went into medicine and I was interested in medicine as a whole, uh, as a science, the science of medicine, if you will. But then when you learn medicine, you learn about different organ systems in the body and so on. As soon as I learned about the brain very early in medical school, I was hooked because it was like, well, it's the most important organ. It's, you know, 2.5. Uh, kilograms, but it takes 25% of the the body's energy. Mm. Uh, it's it's a very small, friable, um, cheesy-like organ that if you basically a living brain, if you touched it, it would fall apart like like feta cheese. Wow! Right, but then it's controlling everything in your body, um, conscious and unconscious, all the organ systems. It's like basically the the most advanced supercomputer the universe has ever seen. There is a quote uh, that uh, I think is attributed to David Eagleman, who's a uh, neuroscientist in the United States, that uh, it's generally agreed upon that from microbiology to astrophysics, that the human brain is the most complex object ever discovered in the known universe. Wow. And that, that fact fascinated me. And we barely know enough about it. Yeah, you know what I always say is that, you know, that saying that we only use 10% of our brains, and yeah. that's categorically not true. So okay. <laughs> we use all of our brains. We just, I think we understand less than 10% of the brain. Wow. Yeah. Well, in terms of kind of jumping into the topic that I want to get to today, it really centers around... I guess I'll start with my own journey. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I talk about kind of my struggles and revelations as an entrepreneur. Um, and very specifically, I remember the first time I met you, 
it was at an entrepreneur's type of summit where you were talking about kind of the stress that goes into being an entrepreneur and Mm -hmm. how that has a tendency to kind of take over your life Mm -hmm. if it's not balanced. And one of the things I think, funny enough, entrepreneurs aren't great at is this notion of delegating. So what ends up happening is that they take on too much throughout the business and they don't leave any kind of room for breathing. Right. And you said something when we first met. You said, it's interesting how so many of you are apprehensive about seeking help when it comes to maintaining your mental health, but you're so quick to do it when it comes to a PT and your physical health, Mm -hmm. um, which I thought was really, really interesting. So out of curiosity, from what you've seen, what do you think are the kind of main issues that are very prevalent in entrepreneurs? Right. And I guess some of the barriers as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I I guess the main issue, you kind of touched on it, which is burnout. Yeah. Um, I think it was two or three years ago that the World Health Organization officially classified burnout as a health condition mm. within the ICD. The ICD is the International Classification of Diseases, which is kind of the main criteria for diseases by the WHO, which is the organizing body for all healthcare in the world. And uh, before that, burn- burnout was just this phenomenon, a health-related phenomenon, but now it's actually classified in the ICD, which mm. upgrades it into something that healthcare providers of all walks, from family doctors to psychiatrists, everything in between, we should be paying attention to. And it leads to um, a lot of changes in the body because if you're burnt out, uh, then that's going to affect your levels of cortisol and other stress hormones, which can increase your blood pressure, which can increase rates of obesity and diabetes, and which can also affect your mental health. So it's all connected. Um, And it is very interesting that entrepreneurs will take care of their physical health. Not just entrepreneurs, a lot of people will take care of their physical health. Mental health is the last thing you'll think about. So that's one thing, burnout. I think is very, very common. The other thing I see a lot, uh, specifically in entrepreneurs, is anxiety. Hmm. And anxiety can take many forms. The form I see mainly in entrepreneurs is performance anxiety or generalized anxiety. Hmm. So performance anxiety is a very specific form of social anxiety. So very severe social anxiety, people would be socially anxious in any kind of setting, in an interview, in uh, giving a lecture, in even ordering at a restaurant or walking in front of people or going to a large gathering. But performance anxiety would be things an entrepreneur would do, chairing a board meeting, um, giving a a talk to employees, uh, doing a TV interview. Uh, And so some entrepreneurs will develop or already have a form of performance anxiety. And then there's generalized anxiety, which is generalized worries all the time about everything, their Mm -hmm. business, their employees, their career, their health their wealth, uh, everything. They Mm. worry even about the fact that they're worrying. Yeah. And then that can lead to problems like fatigue, difficulty sleeping, IBS, like irritable bowel syndrome, um, uh, lack of concentration. And interestingly, what I see a lot is irritability. Mm. Uh, And I've seen that in people from all walks of life, but I've seen it in entrepreneurs a lot. Uh, They'll come to me and say, I'm irritable. Yeah. I'm irritable all the time. And I'll say, you're anxious. And they say, well, no, I'm irritable. And I say, yes. Mm. But that's the tip of the iceberg. You're anxious. Mm. Uh, it's almost always a sign of uh, anxiety, irritability. I find that really int- I can relate to all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's interesting is that as, as because I was very specifically in a leadership position, mm-hmm. I there was an assumption that I always reflected enough to know what was going on inside of me Mm. but it took me completely burning out to realize that no I need help and I need to find a way to deal with this because I'm no longer I'm no longer doing myself justice in terms of giving what I need to do to my business and for the rest of my life but on this topic of anxiety I heard something that was quite interesting Um, the difference between depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. is that depression 
is kind of you giving up while anxiety mm. is your fight to try and get through whatever it is that you're going through. That's, that's, uh, that's an interesting way of putting it because when we model, uh, so for example, when you're doing psychiatric research on mm. animals, mm. animal models, so there's different animal models where we can model something in an animal so that we study how a human would react uh, when you're doing experiments. And if you look at the animal models of depression and anxiety, they're very similar to what you just described when we use uh, mice or rats in, in laboratory settings. I don't do that, but, but kind of um, more... Downstream, uh, downstream researchers who are doing more uh, lab research rather than clinical research are doing that. But the mouse models of depression is something called the four swim test. Okay. And so you get a mouse in a, in a cylindrical container with, a, with something they can climb out of, and then they swim. And you can time how long the mouse uh, swims. And if it gives up very quickly, that's a mouse model of depression. So it's kind of giving up. Uh, and then anxiety is modeled very similar to what you said. They're just kind of searching and running around in a cage for food or, or trying to find something. Um, so if we, you know, t take that to the mammalian or human level, uh, it is very much that. Uh, depression philosophically can be thought of as a, a sense of a, a sense of dread about missing out uh, or having, you know, guilt about the the past. Mm. And then anxiety is more future oriented, which is um, what's going to happen in the future. Is it is it going to harm me? Is it going to harm others? Um, am I going to win or lose from the entrepreneurial kind of uh, mindset? So uh, if we want to go to more a medical definition of this, depression is more of a mood disorder. So depression, the two hallmarks of depression are either the presence of sadness extensively or the absence of happiness. So it would be a feeling of sad, low, depressed mood most of the time for most of the day for at least two weeks or longer. Or if you don't have that, it would be you're not sad, but you don't enjoy the simple things that you used to enjoy, not just the complex things. So even like looking at a sunset or a cup of coffee or playing with your um, you know, niece or nephew or you know, doing anything fun or playing your favorite sport or shopping, you lose that sense of enjoyment of that. That's also a sign of depression. And then there's a lot of associated symptoms. Anxiety, the core symptom, is overthinking and worry. Mm. Um, as opposed to depression, it's a feeling uh, whereas anxiety is more of a thought. Okay. Yeah. But there's something interesting that you said because I guess if we go back to the to, to the metaphor, or not the metaphor, the example of the, the mice that you were talking about, right. the ones in the cage, yeah. if we talk about it as kind of, you know, our brains are in this metaphorical cage when mm -hmm. we are in these two states, mm -hmm. um, a lot of the time, unfortunately, it takes something very serious to happen for us to kind of wake up to that. Mm -hmm. And especially when you talked about, um, when you just mentioned this this notion of depression being the absence of happiness, mm -hmm. a lot of the conversation around that, especially now with, you know, the hype of self-care and meditation, there's, there's this kind of, I don't want to say accepted because I don't think it's accepted yet, but there's this notion that happiness is a choice and it's something that you just have to decide to do. Mm -hmm. So even when it comes to, I don't want to say admitting defeat because obviously that it's not fair to say that mm. depression is quite serious. What what are really the signs that indicate okay this is a danger zone? Whether it's severe anxiety yeah. that requires attention or depression, it's you know very similar to how we think about diabetes nowadays. Mm. So um, you can be pre-diabetic. I don't know if you've heard that term, but you can be you can have normal blood sugar, you can be pre-diabetic, and then you can have diabetes, which is kind of in its infancy, and then there's kind of severe diabetes where you need multiple medications. Uh, so we look at mental health as a spectrum. 
So burnout usually doesn't require any kind of medical intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would require a change of lifestyle, some delegation, um, uh, you know, sleeping better, working out, um, taking some time out, meditating, and so on. And then you can have something called an adjustment disorder, which is not, again, clinical depression, but it would be a major event in your life, not a trauma, because that would be more in line with trauma-related disorders like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, but something something that's not traumatic like a death, but, you know, a breakup or a financial loss or not doing well on something academic or mm. having a parent that's sick or, or something like that. And then you go through this adjustment period where you have depressive-like symptoms, but it's a normal human reaction, but maybe slightly excessive. Mm-hmm. And that can be correlated to almost like pre-diabetes. And then clinical depression, when you know you need to see a specialist, of course, in any of these stages, you could see someone mm-hmm. because early intervention always leads to better long-term outcomes. That's a rule in medicine, not just in psychiatry. Early intervention leads to better long, long-term outcomes. Um, but depression per se would be at least two weeks of having low mood or loss of interest all the time. And what I mean all the time is from the moment you wake up till the moment you sleep for at least 14 days in a row. Mm. And people think, well, that's that's a low criteria. It's actually not. You know, Think about times you've felt sad in your life, and we all do as humans. Do you actually feel sad from the moment you wake up till the moment you sleep every day consistently for 14 days in a row without there being a grief event happening? Mm. Um, and without having used a substance or w- and without having a medical issue that causes depression like low thyroid. And then associated with that, you have to have multiple associated symptoms like disturbance in sleep or appetite or uh, hopelessness, suicidal thoughts, things like that. And it has to lead to a loss of function. Mm-hmm. And that's really the core. When people ask me, when do I seek help? My answer is when it started to affect your function in one of three major areas. If you're studying academics, if you're not your occupation and your social life. So if any one of those areas is affected, then you need to reach out because, mm-hmm. uh, again, early intervention is going to lead to better long-term outcomes, but it's also never too late to, to intervene. Okay. And the intervention isn't always medical. Mm. It could be a change of lifestyle. It could be meditation. Uh, you mentioned one thing earlier. Sorry, I'm giving a long-winded answer, but uh, the kind of acceptance of meditation and you, you know, um, you, happiness is a choice. I believe in that to a degree, but I also believe that sometimes that can go toxic, yeah. like anything, and it can be like oh, a toxic form of posit- positivity that, you know, I, I saw a cartoon once where it was uh, someone uh, with, I think, a broken leg, and mm-hmm. it, it says, you know, someone's saying to them, have you tried walking? And, you know, and, and then below it says, what if we treated mental health like we treat physical health? Like, you know, Mm. if we said someone depressed, have you tried, you know, laughing? Have you tried not crying? Yeah. But sometimes not in their hands. Uh, Interesting. Whereas that would work for someone with burnout. Yeah. You know, willing yourself into that would work. So we need to know what stage the person's in. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, What do you think you would consider some common misconceptions about mental health that you've encountered specifically in this type of conversation? And Mm. when I say this conversation, I'm not just talking about diagnosis, I'm talking about people's assumptions of what that means. Mm. Because for me, I think that's that's where the stigma stems from. It stems from not just how I feel about what I could have, it stems from how you as my friend are going to react to me thinking right. that I am burnt out, that I am depressed, that I am anxious. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I remember for me, it was really, it was really difficult to actually come out and say that I'm burnt out because mm-hmm. it just felt like I was a failure. Yeah. But that's half the battle, right? Mm. It, it, first of all, to identify it to yourself and then to speak it out to someone who could hopefully help. Um, 
Now, it's interesting. That makes me think of a study a, a friend of mine did in Kuwait, Dr. Nick Skull, uh, to give him a shout out. He's a really great psychi- psychologist uh, based in Kuwait and the U.S. And he did a study where he found that one of the highest reasons for stigma in Kuwait, where we're taping, is that uh, a person has had a previous bad experience with a mental health uh, mm. provider. And that puts the onus on us as mental health providers, whether psychiatrists or psychologists or social workers, to really up our game, especially in a place that's underserved. But coming back, what are some of the mo- common misconceptions is that if I go to a mental health specialist of, of any walk, that equals being quote unquote crazy or losing my mind or admitting defeat. Um, whereas no one would think that around going to see someone for abdominal pain, that could be appendicitis. Mm. Oh, I'm admitting defeat. Why don't you just suck it up? I could yeah. have appendicitis and need surgery, right? Yeah. And if my appendix blows, that could be dangerous, whereas it's a simple surgery if I if I go early. No one would think that. Um, and yet around mental health, we think that. Where does that come from? It comes from lots of different things. It comes from the media, uh, especially for a long time. Maybe recently that's changed, but whether you talk about Western or Eastern media, there was a very um, kind of um, dark portrayal of mental health and uh, there were certainly dark ages in mental health, just like there were dark ages in medicine. You yeah. know, surgical practice uh, back in the day, we wouldn't want to have now at all. There wasn't any of the modern tools or anesthesia or antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And the same in mental health, you know, uh, bloodletting and seizures and ice baths and so on were used. And that's that's all changed. So that's the main thing. It's, I don't want to be labeled as crazy. I don't want to admit defeat. Uh, what if I end up on a drug that I have to take for the rest of my life? Yeah. Uh, what if, uh, although if you went to a diabetologist and you had diabetes and they said, look, you need to take this drug for the rest of your life until we have some kind of cure for diabetes, you wouldn't hesitate. No, not at all. But in mental health, hopefully it doesn't get to that. But some people have a, an illness where, you, for example, bipolar disorder. Yeah. The treatment for bipolar disorder, they, you have to be on medication and you can't stop it because if you stop it, you might have uh, one of the episodes. Um, whereas depression... You know, a, a good chunk of people can stop the antidepressant with time if if they went to that severe level of depression. But there's always this resistance. Yeah. Um, that no, I have to stop my medication eventually because it's a crutch. Exactly. Yeah, but is it? I mean, if you have some kind of chemical deficiency in your pancreas with insulin and you take insulin shots, is the insulin shots a crutch or is it replacing something that you're missing with a major mental illness like bipolar or schizophrenia? Mm. There's a uh, a networking problem in the brain that's related to chemical messaging and we can fix it nowadays. And so why not? Why not stay on the medication that worked for those major mental illnesses? So there's a lot of misconceptions around uh, the, if I will, the behavioral and uh, emo- the behavioral, emotional, cognitive parts of the brain. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? Um, I like what you were saying that a lot of this stems from our perception of it that was dictated by possibly the media at some yeah. point, because I think another misconception is this notion that, you know, we're so used to this idea of someone who is, let's say, bipolar or mm-hmm. schizophrenic, having to deal with their mental illness in complete isolation of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. They were at some point sent to an asylum. Yeah. And if you were there, if you were in a rehab center or an asylum, you were separated from society because you are not considered quote unquote normal. Right. And I feel like now, especially the more exposed we are to this this type of a conversation, this notion of normal is a complete illusion as well. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's interesting, like when it comes to, so again, going back to my question, a misconception that, you know, can someone who is suffering from a, a various amount of, um, 
or different possibilities of mental health disorders coexist with everyone else and still get better? Because I think that's also a concern. Yeah. In fact, coexisting with everyone else helps them getting better. Really? So, Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So integration with society, acceptance by others has been clearly shown in multiple studies uh, to speed up recovery. As opposed to isolating yourself. As opposed to isolating, okay. absolutely. Even in major mental illness. Um, and if you read the history of uh, of mental health, history of uh, psychiatry, there's actually a really good book by Ed Shorter uh, mm -hmm. from the University of Toronto called The History of Psychiatry. And in it, he talks about uh, the age of asylums. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that all changed with a French psychiatrist named Pinel. Mm -hmm. who, and there's a famous painting of him going into the asylums in France and liberating the, uh, the mentally ill from their chains. They were chained at that time. And it's a beautiful kind of, you know, oil painting. I, I forget which museum it's in. It's a very famous painting. And you see Pinel liberating them from their chains. And that was the beginning of, you know, kind of the end of the asylum era and more integrating into, I guess, the beginnings of community psychiatry. And then really using hospitals only for very acute conditions and most of psychiatry happening in a clinic or a community setting, just like the rest of medicine. Yeah. Um, now, can we go a step beyond that? where we, just like we now think about prevention, mm. uh, prevention is really the key word, I think, in the 21st century. Yeah. We don't want to wait for someone to get ill. How can, we, how can we prevent diabetes? Well, we can prevent diabetes to some degree. We can't control our genes, but we can control the way we eat. We can control our built environment to promote exercise. Uh, we can promote healthy eating in schools. And, okay, can we do that with mental health as well? Can we prevent self-awareness? Can we uh, uh, promote... Uh, empathy? Mm. Can we uh, decrease racism and bullying? All these kind of social, uh, whether social environment or built environment factors that can increase the rates of depression, anxiety, trauma. Yeah. Can we work on them as, as a society? And therefore, um, you know, and, and that's where it brings us back to entrepreneurs, mm. because I don't think that's going to come from uh, physicians alone or even government alone. Yeah, That's where the private systems. sector comes absolutely. in. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's interesting that you made that connection because I think the problem is with these institutions that are used to running a specific way um, and the people that want to come in and disrupt that. Uh, but again, if we look at it from the perspective of, you know, these these things need to change, these foundations need to change, it almost feels like this impossible task mm. where we almost need to just teach a new generation and wait for the rest to kind of die out because the problem <laughs> I know that sounds very depressing but like in some cases it feels like it's the case it's the circle of life I right guess, in a lot it of is. things yeah but today that where we are right now if you're talking about prevention mm. for people that are of a similar age group I mean a lot of us are are, are living to our our 80s 90s you mm -hmm. know my my parents my mm -hmm. grandparents whatever how do we find a way to to educate people in a way where they are, I love what you said about self-awareness. Yeah. Is it just a matter of self-awareness to help with this idea of prevention? You know, the more we know about ourselves, the more we invest in just understanding and reflecting a little bit more, or is it the access to information? I mean, how do we prevent something like this happening? I know this is something my friends that are mothers struggle mm. with a lot. Yeah, with, uh, for example, postpartum depression mm. or, or burnout as well. Uh, it's a complex question, and I don't think it's one thing. I think it's a combination of things, but I think it starts early, as you said. It starts with the educational system. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the United States, and uh, I remember, you know, health education class being um, a big part of public health education or, or public education in the United States at elementary and middle, middle school and high school level. Uh, but even at that time, there was a lot of focus on physical health, like healthy eating, mm. exercise, and so on. So can we get mental health? 
into that level? Can we get meditation into into curriculums? You know mm -hmm. how we have a, a physical education class. Can be can there be 15 minutes of meditation? Um, can we teach in our literature curriculums? Um, you know texts that teach self-reflection. And there's lots of classic and modern texts that that teach that. And uh, you know a healthy mind isn't a healthy body. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, emphasizing the things we've always emphasized, hopefully for a long time, like healthy eating and sleeping and so on, those do uh, equal a healthy mind. Um, but social structures play a big, big role. You know, a lot of the uh, kind of illnesses I see nowadays stem from childhood or adolescent trauma. Yeah. And trauma, now we're understanding trauma. Before we used to think about trauma as a veteran coming back from a war or someone who survived an earthquake or, uh, you know, God forbid, um, you know, a robbery or a sexual assault or something like that. But today we think about trauma as, uh, you know, chronic bullying mm. or uh, chronic sexism or you know, being ostracized because of your race or your creed or your religion. And can we, can we really educate our youth to, to we're, not, we're never going to be a perfect utopia, but have a little more understanding of the other? And be able to kind of what is empathy? Seeing things from the the viewpoint of another person, and I I gave a talk about this once in, in the National Union of Kuwaiti Students conference, that if we developed empathy more at the youth level, a lot of the the issues we'd see nowadays associated with trauma would be much much less than before, mm -hmm. and we'd be left with trauma stemming from war and natural disasters and so on. Um, so I think that's that's a big piece of the puzzle. Empathy that's and interesting. education. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to think about kind of how the role of empathy is so much. I mean, I even think about how it would work within the dynamics of a family. Yeah. Because I feel like that's also where it all starts, right? right. Your your family environment and, and how empathetic families are to each other. Right. And you learn it from your parents. Completely. Well. Yeah. Completely. It's something that's inherited and right. it kind of just keeps going. Um, and speaking of entrepreneurs and organization. You know, Absolutely. Uh, that, uh, you know, I've worked with organizations where I've given talks. So, and you can tell that the organization is very empathic. It's, you see how the employees deal with each other and the supervisors interact with employees and, and some uh, organizations that are just work and no empathy and it's just, you know, bottom line and, uh, yeah. and so on. So, uh, and I do think it makes an organization more successful to have empathy within the organization mm. um, because people become more driven by a mission and a sense of meaning. Yeah. And that's what, by the way, that's what drives a human being. Absolutely. A sense of meaning. Absolutely. Yeah. So if they find meaning in their work, yeah. uh, then they're going to perform that much better than the organization as a whole is going to succeed. 100%. And I was just talking to someone about this because this is something that, I mean, especially in my industry, communications mm -hmm. and brand building and things like that, this notion of incorporating some sort of larger purpose into what it is that we do really does help in terms of elevating morale and just making fee people feel like they're a part of something bigger. But the challenge is, is you know, uh, we can't ignore the fact that um, the dynamics of work has completely changed. Mm -hmm. So we're dealing with a generation that um, is very in tune with how they feel and what they expect of the world and how they want to contribute. And a generation that was... Uh, raised very differently. And, and they recognize that we still are a business and we there is a bottom line and right. we have responsibility. Yeah. And, and they clash, They right? clash completely. Yeah. And it's so difficult because it ends up being that, you know, the latter is uh, unempathetic, which mm -hmm. I don't always think is the case. I, I, yeah, you know, it's, history repeats itself, right? Like that's always the, the issue between major generational shifts, which we're going through one now in the world. Mm. Um, 
so I, I think that's part of what you're alluding to. That's yeah. it's more of a s- kind of social psychology, if yeah. you will. Yeah, it is. Yeah. On that note, mm-hmm. if I were to ask you about mental health as a spectrum, mm. we talked about burnout, which I still feel like is a very buzzwordy word that mm. not a lot of people take as seriously. But for now, let's call it. Uh, if it was on a spectrum, it would be classified as more of a temporary state right. versus something that um, on the opposite side of the spectrum would be classified as an actual illness right. and would actually require a different type of consultation mm-hmm. with something that I don't even know enough about, which is psychiatry. Right. And there's a difference between psychiatry and psychology, psychology. Yeah. a therapist and a counselor. Right. And I remember very specifically when I went through my burnout And I had my circle kind mm-hmm. of diagnosing me, telling me that, Dana, this is, your state is depression. You are mm-hmm. depressed. Um, this is what it looks like. It's anxiety. It's whatever. They felt like it was just easy to just put a label on it right. to the point where I just genuinely felt overwhelmed because I just felt like okay, I, something's wrong. And I called you. Mm-hmm. And it was you educating me on the differences between all of these you know, right. different verticals. So c- can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And, and, and in your case, we thought it was burnout, yeah. not, not depression, mm-hmm. um, uh, thankfully. Because yeah, depression is harder to treat, but I mean, had it been depression, it would have still been. There's still ways to fix it. Yeah. Um, so burnout uh, encompasses more feelings of exhaustion, mm. detachment, and uh, a lack of sense of meaning. Mm. Uh, whereas depression is more uh, cognitive, emotional, and physical symptoms. So things like, as we said, the two core features are uh, feeling depressed, sad, or hopeless, along with a loss of sense of interest or enjoyment. Mm. So those two major features being there most of the time and affecting your function. And then associated features, which if, if I list them, you'll see a lot of them are physical. So it'll be things like a change in appetite f- uh, for food, a change in sleep pattern, uh, a change in physical energy. One of the nine features of depression is a change in psychomotor function. So psychomotor function is actually your movement. Oh. I remember one of the most uh, compelling cases I saw ever You know, sometimes, you know, you see a lot of cases and you you hit a bunch of home runs. This is in any field, right? Uh, you start getting you know, full of yourself. And mm-hmm. I, I remember, I, I think any doctor goes through this arc. And then as you become more knowledgeable, you become more humble yeah. in any field, right? Yeah, yeah. You realize how much you don't know. Um, so starting off, having come back from Canada and, you know, hitting a few home runs with mood disorder patients that uh, had been struggling and, you know, fix things up based on what you learned. So I, this patient walks into my clinic and, you know, sometimes I, I test myself, um, not that people's lives are a game, but, you know, you, you kind of are testing yourself for your knowledge. And, and sometimes patients walk in and you, you think to yourself, I bet by the end of this consultation, it's going to be either this or that. Okay. Now, you don't bias yourself, but, you know, it's, it's kind of this thing you do uh, to keep you going through the clinic. And this patient walks in and I thought, interesting, this patient's going to have Parkinson's. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's the, because I studied neurology along with psychiatry okay. and uh, she looked like a Parkinson's patient. And for those of you who haven't seen a Parkinson's patient, they, they have a very specific way of walking. It's very slowly with small footsteps and it's um, like a shuffling. It, it's, it's a very typical Parkinson's gait or a way of walking. And she was walking like that, exactly like a person with Parkinson's. Sat down, went through. She didn't have any features of Parkinson's. It was just very severe depression. And when she got treatment for depression, those physical features went away wow. with no treatment for Parkinson's. That's a, that's a very extreme case. Yeah. But that is one of the symptoms of depression, a change in your motor movements. Wow. And, and that's proof that it's a brain disorder. And then, you know, things like suicidal thoughts and excessive guilt for no reason. Um, those are some of the nine, nine features of depression. It's very different than burnout. Yeah. Uh, depression can come without a trigger whatsoever. Mm. 
like zero. It could be triggered or it could not. In the past, we used to talk about reactive depression versus endogenous or internal depression. And that classification is gone. Mm. Now depression is depression if you have the features. Whereas burnout, it's all, it's, it must be triggered by something, usually workplace burnout. But also we see things like caregiver burnout. Yeah. Or, um, uh, we with see mothers. That with, well, not even mothers. I see that with children of elderly uh, patients or uh, a person going through a you know, really terrible illness like Alzheimer's or cancer. Mm, yeah, and uh, they have so to you take see, care. And they take care of them all the time and, and uh, you're doing your job and then you're taking care of this parent or son or daughter. It takes a toll on them. Absolutely, and, and they go through caregiver burnout. And so mm. that's one of the things, for example, when I see an Alzheimer's patient, I always make it a point to address the caregivers coming with them mm. because uh, Alzheimer's has been shown to have the highest rates of caregiver burnout of any medical illness. Wow. Uh, so that's something you need to address because if you don't take care of the caregiver burnout, the patient isn't going to do well mm. with their Alzheimer's because they don't have that support without burnout. So that's uh, that's kind of the spectrum of burnout versus... In our, in our case, we're talking about workplace burnout. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what we talked about with you because yeah. you had gone through... Uh, a huge amount of stress with work, as mm-hmm. almost every entrepreneur does. Correct. And um, and at a certain point, you could burn out. And the, the name is interesting, isn't it? Burnout. It's like a, like a machine that you haven't or taken to maintenance yeah. or <laughs> ran out of oil, right? Yeah. And so the the gears are rubbing against each other, and they're just the metal on metal, and it's just burning out. Mm-hmm. That's. Uh, but that's what's interesting, and uh, it it so again, I had in my specific case. Uh, a lot of things had to happen at once to get me to a point where there perfect was storm. no exact literally yeah. that's literally what it was yeah. it was the perfect storm yeah. but going back to the point okay the spectrum does exist but what where does a psychiatrist come in and where uh, does a psychologist sorry i forgot come that part of your no, question no, no, it's so okay. so psychiatry um, you know a good example and mm. people I, I use this in my clinic yeah. because people get this example but they find it weird that it's a correlate to psychiatry psychology and the other affiliated fields mm is uh, orthopedics. Okay. Yeah. So a psychiatrist would be akin to an orthopedic surgeon. Okay. So you need the orthopedic surgeon when you require some kind of intervention, like an injection in the joint or a surgery, um, in terms of intervention, but also in terms of diagnosis to kind of put together the treatment plan as a whole. Mm. Now, you might see an orthopedic surgeon for an issue, and they say, you see them first, and they say, okay, based on your MRI and, and the radiographic report, I'm not going to do surgery, and I, you don't need any in, injections. I'm going to prescribe you an anti-inflammatory for two weeks, and you need physio. Mm. So psychiatry and psychology would be like that. So psychology and psychiatry can diagnose. It's probably better that the psychiatrist diagnoses, unless you're dealing with a kind of more senior clinical psychologist. But in in general, it's better that the psychiatrist diagnoses because the psychiatrist knows also the medical illnesses that could mimic a, a mental illness. So for okay. example, th- hypothyroidism, low thyroid, can mimic depression. Oh, wow. Parkinson's can mimic dementia. Um, uh, some of the rheumatological illnesses can mimic bipolar. Mm. So uh, a psychiatrist who studied medical school would be aware of that. So they would know how to diagnose, which tests need to be ordered, what are the criteria, and then putting together the overall plan. Mm. And if that plan involves a medical intervention, such as brain stimulation or medications, they would take c- care of that plan. Mm. In general, almost any mental health condition would do better with therapy, mm-hmm. talk therapy of some kind, just like almost any bone condition would do better with physio. So for every orthopedic surgeon, probably you need five or 10 physios working with them. Same thing. For every psychiatrist, you need five or 10 psychologists okay. because they co- cover the bulk of almost any mental health patient needs psychotherapy, but not everyone needs a psychiatrist. Um, yeah. um, and then you have 
you mentioned earlier the difference. What's the difference between a counselor and a therapist? Um, and it's really the level of training. Mm. So sometimes a social worker can take uh, courses in counseling or someone could take basics in counseling psychology. And then psychotherapy is usually a clinical psychologist who's done more years of training and, and uh, studied many different fields of therapy. Because mm. just like there's different medications, there's different fields within, within therapy. There's cognitive behavioral therapy, psychodynamic or an analytical therapy, marriage ca uh, counseling or marriage therapy, group psychotherapy. Mm. Um, and you need to kind of think about which one fits with this person mm. and at what point it fits with it. Because at a certain point, you may need group psychotherapy and at another point, you may need uh, coaching, mm. right? Um, and that's uh, that could be, you could start to think about coaching as part of the spectrum. Um, sort of. Well, here's here's the issue with coaching. Yeah, I actually now everyone's become a coach. <laughs> that's my issue with coaching. Yeah. So so uh, sometimes when I've given interviews around this, they say you know coaches who are friends of mine uh, have a, a reaction that oh of course you psychiatrists you 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 don't like coaching because it eats into kind of what you do. And my answer is no. I mean, not even psychology eats into what we, we do med medicine. Mm. Uh, th my issue with coaching is that very few coaches that I've seen stay within their role. Yeah. Uh, so I stay very tightly within my role. I, I am trained in therapy, but I'm trained in therapy as much as an orthopedic surgeon's trained in physio, maybe a little more. Mm. So can an orthopedic surgeon do basic physio? Yes, they can, but it's probably better to refer to the expert and to work together. Uh, can a psychiatrist do some therapy? Yes, but it's better to refer to an expert psychotherapist. Can a psychiatrist or a psychologist do some basic coaching? Yes, they can, but it's probably better to refer to a coach. The problem is most coaches I've seen think they can do coaching, counseling, therapy, and... Yeah, which is quite dangerous. It is. It is. Yeah. Like, I'm a, I'm one of those people that... Re like, I'm a big believer in therapy, mm -hmm. okay? Even, even before I went through burnout, I tried therapy out. I think it's a beautiful practice. And one of the biggest reasons why was when I initially tried it, I discovered that it's actually less about the therapist helping you fix something, mm -hmm. but it's actually the role of the therapist to almost help you reflect and question whatever's going on in your mind. Um, and that's what made me appreciate therapy in my case. Yeah. Um, but how do you feel about this idea? Because I really truly believe that everyone needs therapy. It's, it's interesting. So uh, I was actually ex explaining this today to someone who was, uh, I had a patient I'd seen and I said, I think you need therapy and they weren't very convinced. Um, and I was 100% sure they needed therapy. They needed some psychiatric intervention as well, but I, I could tell they were going to work on the psychiatric intervention, in their case medication, but not work on the therapy, which I, I thought in the, would be a mistake. And the way I explained it is, it is a very unique therapeutic human relationship. Mm. And there's three aspects to therapy that are unique, that make it therapeutic, that are non-existent in any single kind of human relationship on this planet, whether we're talking you know, uh, parent, uh, offspring, whether we're talking about friends, whether we're talking about boss, so on. Husband, wife. Husband, wife, anything. Okay. So the three unique things about the relationship between uh, the, the client or, or patient and the therapist are that it's one-sided. Mm. Okay. So the, the client speaks. You don't need to worry about what the therapist brings into that room that day. They need to take care of that outside the room and they should not bring it in. If they're a good therapist, they, they should not bring it into the room. So that's unique. Mm. Number two, it's completely, completely confidential. Again, if they're a good therapist, they're, they have an oath to mm. confidentiality. So that doesn't exist, not even with your husband or wife or, because there's no oath. Correct. Uh, and then the third thing is that it's completely, as much as humanly possible, non-judgmental. And mm. they actually train in this. And when I trained in therapy, uh, one of the things they make you do is to go through therapy yourself, even 
uh, if you don't have a mental condition or mental illness or burnout because you want to understand your own emotions and your own issues and your own uh, kind of things you bring from your life and your childhood and your relationships so much that to the extent humanly possible, it removes judgment from your mind or your heart. So you actually had a therapist? For four years. Wow. Once a week. Wow. Can you imagine? So 52 weeks a year minus vacations wow. for four years because my residency was five years long. Uh, and I started uh, therapy in uh, the second year of residency, which most people in my program did. And it was it's, it's pretty much mandatory okay. uh, at the program where I trained at the University of Toronto. It's, it's semi-mandatory. You can still graduate with it. It's frowned upon if you don't do therapy. They don't, they don't, they don't feel like you've completed the whole program. Okay, fair enough. Um, and uh, I can say without a doubt, it's one of the most important things I've done in my life. Throughout my therapy, I was never diagnosed with a mental illness. I was never diagnosed with a major issue. Alhamdulillah, I haven't gone through, I've had issues in my life, but I've never gone through a major trauma. Yeah. So on, at face level, you wouldn't think I would need or even maybe benefit from therapy. Mm. I can tell you it changed me as a person. Wow. Um, and I think what it changed the most is, I like to think I was a non-judgmental person. Uh, have, we spoke about this in the beginning, being an outsider, having lived in multiple cultures, so sometimes feeling like an outsider. But man, oh man, after the therapy, I really kind of started to understand how much judgment we have wow. of ourselves, mainly, yeah. and of others. And so uh, developing that skill to, um, you know, my therapist was found, uh, very found, uh, fond of a word. Um, I'm trying to think of the way he put it, but it was like, it wasn't forgiveness, but it was a synonym to forgiveness, but it was... Uh, you know, to forgive yourself and forgive others. Mm. It'll probably come to me in a second. But that kind of concept um, is really, really important. I think the way he thought about it is that was the building blocks for empathy. Wow. Uh, Can I ask you a personal question? Of course. Yeah. Especially, I mean, four years, that's quite a commitment. Yeah. Because I think one of the biggest fears that I had and that I hear from a lot of people I know is even if it's confidential, this idea of someone else knowing so much about your mm -hmm. personal history. But my personal question is, how do you feel like those four years of you being on the opposite side mm -hmm. of, you know, the couch or the office? Right. How has it made you a better partner in your relationship with your wife? And how has it made you a better mm. father to your children? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. I think um, I think it's it's mainly self-understanding, mm -hmm. uh, being able. So one of the issues we have as people uh, and I say this to medical students when I teach, is we are we. We, we. It's very hard to see ourselves from the outside. And that self-reflection allowed me a, a safe, confidential, one-sided uh, space where I knew this person was there to take care of me. Um, and that was their meaning in life, plus their profession. So, I mean, that's their income. But mm. also beyond that, I mean, they do it because they, they care about the specialty. Um, and I could say anything in that space and would not be judged. And in fact, I did and was never judged and um, able to reflect freely. That ability to understand myself much better allows me in situations where my, you know, we all have peeves and we all get angry and we all, we're all humans. I'm not a, a Buddha, right? And so, uh, but it allows me that, that space to understand where that feeling is coming from what how i was built as an emotional being uh, and be able to reflect and pause and that pause uh allows that space to kind of understand the other mm. 
whether it's my spouse or my kids or a friend or a coworker. Uh, do I get it right 100% of the time? No, but I get it much more right than I did before therapy. Uh, and uh, I think the other thing that helped me is being a psychiatrist. So mm. seeing people's struggles and, and then being back on the other side of the couch treating, that shows you more and more how vulnerable and how flawed and how difficult uh, life is. And So it made you more empathetic to them? I, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I, I've said this before. I think being... Uh, someone who works in mental health, in my case, a psychiatrist, is a blessing in my life. It's not just a profession. Mm. It's something I really, truly feel blessed with, that it changed me as a, a, as a person. I think it made me a better person. Wow. I do have to say one thing, though, about the therapy. Um, I was lucky because mm. it was part of my training, so I got four years of therapy for free Yeah. Uh, with someone very expert because, mm. of course, the program knows that they're assigning someone who's a trainee psychiatrist to a therapist. Mm. So the whole time, especially in the beginning, you know, whatever they say, you're like, oh, are they using this technique or are they using that? Uh, so there's an analytical part to of it. Of course. And so they assign you someone very senior. Yeah. Uh, so I was very lucky that I was assigned someone very expert, very senior and didn't have to pay. Mm. And I know most people are not lucky. So mo uh, in that sense, and it's almost impossible to get four years of therapy weekly. Yeah. It, it adds up. It's expensive. But I would say to anyone listening that... Even if you did it for six or 12 sessions, you don't have to do what I did because yeah. maybe you're, you're not going to be a psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, it is still going to be helpful. It yeah. is still going to give you at least the seed of that ability to kind of self-reflect. I mean, on that note, there's another thing that seems to be happening quite a bit, and it's the shift from... Um, uh, a more affordable model to which is online therapy. Yeah, um, there are a lot of platforms that are kind of adopting it, but uh, there's a lot of skepticism around it to begin yeah. with. You know, is it legit? Although the people there, I mean, clearly they're qualified, mm -hmm. um, or at least that's what their credentials say. Yeah. But uh, is it legitimate therapy if I'm doing it on a computer versus in person? Because the cost is significantly different. Yeah. Well, because there's no brick and mortar, you're yeah. you're lowering that cost there. Uh, I'm a supporter. Mm -hmm. um, I think what we need is to make sure that people are credentialed and they have enough hours of experience. So the same um, criteria we uphold someone to if they're going to open a clinic, if they do an online clinic. But I support it because the research supports it. Mm. Um, if you look at the research, especially during COVID, there was a lot of research during COVID where everyone moved online. That, um, uh, In fact, there was an editorial in the American Journal of Psychiatry, which is the most important psychiatric journal, uh, that looked at not only is it equal that there are some benefits to online therapy, mm -hmm. something that wasn't thought of before. One famous uh, psychiatrist, Joel Paris, who's a famous American psychiatrist and editor in the, in the American Journal of Psychiatry, wrote an editorial about this uh, accompanying one of the articles. And he said that for the first time during COVID, when I was doing mass scale online therapy, all my patients were online for a while, um, I realized the benefit of seeing a patient in their setting. Hmm. So they're wearing the clothes they usually wear. They're not dressed up for me. I'm seeing their pets. I'm seeing their kids running around. I'm seeing the their stresses, environment. their environment. I'm seeing the stress, which I never had access to. I only had descriptions of. So in fact, yes, maybe you see less body language. Uh -huh. But now with you know fast internet connections and HD cameras built into most laptops, mm -hmm. uh, and you know that that can pan out, and at least you see kind of the the body gestures, uh, kind of waist and above. You can get 80% of what you can get uh, without a physical examination, and you're getting the environment that the person's usually in. So there are some benefits to it. Interesting. Um, and as you said, lowering cost, which makes it more accessible. Wow. Yeah. So this was an interesting question. I actually got it from someone online. I took a poll before this uh, session, and this person came up with a term that I had never heard before, Munchausen syndrome. 
Have oh, you yeah, heard of it? Yeah, yeah. And basically, for those of, would you like to explain it? Because the sure. question was, how do we recognize Munchausen syndrome? Mm -hmm. It's very rare. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Munchausen syndrome, like a lot of the early terms in psychiatry are either French or German because okay. the, most of the early psychiatrists were German or French. Uh, so that's a, a German word. <laughs> you, can, okay. you can tell Munchausen syndrome or it's also called Munchausen by proxy. Uh, and the whole idea of Munchausen is developing um, uh, kind of a mental condition based on someone in your environment. Yes. So a mother who's paranoid with, um, a s who has a paranoid illness and someone who's around her all the time, like a son, starts develop developing that same kind of paranoia uh, as uh, a learned behavior. Mm. Now, the tricky thing is that when Munchausen was first described, it was mainly around paranoia. It can be really anything. It could be illness, anxiety, or it could be um, um, OCD, or it could be anything. But usually it was described as paranoia. And paranoia, especially the severe forms like schizophrenia, can be genetic. So oh. is it, you know, sch schizophrenia is primarily genetic. And okay. so um, is it really a learned behavior or is it Munchausen's um, because of the learned behavior? Who knows? And so it's not something that's very... Vogue in psychiatric research or diagnose. I, I haven't diagnosed anyone probably in more than 10 years with Munchausen's mm. um, or Munchausen's by proxy. So, um, and there's other ways of looking at it uh, as well. Whereas uh, like someone fakes an illness mm -hmm. uh, to be, to kind of fit into the environment. But or that's, receive a specific type of attention that they they haven't gotten. Right. There's, there's other names for that as yeah. well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like what? Uh, so uh, things like malingering or factitious disorder. Oh, okay. Uh, it's a, like a proper disorder. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So factitious disorder is where you fake an illness, but that's unconscious because you're assuming the sick role. Ah. Whereas malingering, you actually want some kind of benefit, either financial or time off work and so on. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, related to this question a little bit, I got a couple of questions around this idea of how does one recognize and prevent passing on any of the generational trauma that they grew up with, with mm. their own upbringing to their kids. Because what uh, I asked them to elaborate mm. a bit more, they were saying that, you know, they're, they're trying to be as aware as possible, but they can't help but see a lot of the repeated behavior in yeah. how they were parented in the way that they're parenting their kids. And they're worried about how that's going to look in 20 years. Mm -hmm. There was an interesting study coming back to mice mm. uh, by Michael Meany and his group at the Montreal Neuroscience Institute, mm. which is a famous institute in studying kind of basic sciences in, in neuroscience, especially behavioral health, um, called the Licht Pup Study. Mm -hmm. And basically what they did is they created mice with generational trauma. Oh. And then they, um, and they developed depressive-like behavior, anxious-like behavior, traumatic-like behavior. Through these tests, we talked about like four swim tests and so on. And then what they did is they assigned some of those mice who were generationally breeded to have trauma to caring mice mothers. And, wow. you know, and they bred these mothers to be very caring. And one of the ways mice mothers express caring is to lick their pups. Um, and that's why it was called the licked pup study. Hmm. Uh, so just like a human being hugs and shows physical or emotional uh, kind of uh, warmth, mm. uh, a mouse mother will kind of lick the pup. And what they found is that you could change the mouse behavior, not only in the mouse itself, but also in the generations of mice after it by having a, a caring caregiver. Uh, now, does it have to be a mother? I mean, psychiatry and psychology are sometimes to blame for always emphasizing the mother. You know, it's all, the father is also important, and the society is also important. The friend group, the, the teachers, 
supervisors at work. And so having a warm, caring, empathic environment can decrease generational trauma. Interesting. But you know what's interesting about what you said is the focus on it being the environment and not the sole role of the mother. Because I think what tends to happen is that... let's say that primary take, caretaker, whether it's the mother or the father, that assumes this role and assumes that they're the ones who are going to solve it alone and almost overprotecting this child from mm. the rest of the world, causing a whole bunch of other issues yeah. in the process. And they can burn out, yeah, right? Completely. They're coming back to burnout. Completely. Um, and it really does take a village, right, mm. to raise, especially in this globalized, interconnected world we live in today. Um, you know, I think extended family... Uh, and not in the Eastern society sense of extended family, mm-hmm. which is aunts, uncles, grandparents, cousins, but extended family in terms of who are the family you choose? Mm. Who are the friends you keep uh, close and the, the kind of positive relationships that you keep at work, uh, in colleagues, in mentors, um, and then even within your own family? That that concept of what, who are the family you choose, not just the family you're born with, that can create a, a licked pup environment. It's interesting that you say that because I have a question on that note. The way that we are as a culture and a society on on this side of the world, Middle Easterners, we're very, um, we're a lot more family oriented than I would say maybe the West, just purely from a cultural perspective. Is working with patients or treating patients different in terms of experience here than it is there? Or do we share a lot? Really? Like how, in what way? Uh, Well, I mean, some things are very similar. So the criteria for diagnosing depression and so on, that doesn't change. Mm -hmm. But in terms of how you communicate Mm. uh, with a patient and then how much you involve the family, of course, with the permission of the patient, but usually, you know, many patients will want their family involved, especially if their family's caring. I mean, Mm -hmm. if it's a toxic family, they... They don't want them involved. And then I'll employ more of a Western perspective where the family wants to come in and I'll say, well, you know, when the, when the patient agrees, right? Okay. Uh, but in the majority of cases, they want them involved. And so you need to explain the issue not only to the patient, but also to their family. I wouldn't need to do that in Canada or the U.S. as much. Because if I tell a patient to take their medication, I have less of a fear of the patient going home and then the family saying, don't take the medication and they'll listen to the family. Uh. Or to do therapy. Oh, no, no, don't do therapy. You know, it's, uh, whereas here I have to... You know, one of the things, first things I've learned when I moved to Kuwait to start practicing here to ask, which I didn't in the beginning, but you learn through uh, practice is, is there anyone waiting outside in the waiting room? And do you want some time for them to come in at the end? I never needed to ask that in Canada. Wow. Almost always people would come on their own. Um, and, uh, and the answer is usually yes. And I'd have to leave some time at the end for the father or the mother or the spouse or to come in and give a little... And I'd say, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to leave out? And kind of give a brief explainer of what we talked about, what the diagnosis is, what the treatment is. And if I don't do that, the chance of adhering to the treatment, whatever that treatment is, is much lower. Wow. So that's that's a big part of it. So uh, we talk about isolation versus enmeshment. Mm. The sweet spot is in between, but sometimes families in the eastern part of the world, Middle East specifically, can be very enmeshed, mm. too um, involved. To an unhealthy degree? It can be to an okay. unhealthy degree. And then sometimes the isolation that I used to see in the West, of course it's not, I mean, I'd see enmeshment in the West and, and then isolation in the East as well. But if you take it as a stereotype, uh, it's enmeshment is more common here. Uh, isolation is more common there. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be mindful of that commonality. And then, you know, I remember practicing in Canada, a lot of the work I have to do is how do I engage this person with people around them in society. Mm. Whereas here is sometimes, how do I disengage from a toxic relationship yeah. uh, and move and create emotional barriers from a toxic family that can't be changed? Wow, yeah. interesting. Th- that's at an extreme. But on that note, um, I want to move on to another point, which is 
supporting loved ones. Okay. As you said, this this notion of, you call it enmeshment, we call it just being kids <laughs> of Arabs, like it's as simple as that. Um, you know, one, uh, we're always encouraged to have boundaries, but at the same time, we very much need our circle. As you mm-hmm. were saying, our environment plays a big part in kind of supporting us. Um, and the tendency is usually to diagnose or mm-hmm. to to give unwarranted uh, feedback or assumptions on whatever this person's going through. What is the right way to support someone who is struggling? Even if we haven't pinpointed what the struggle is, like mm-hmm. h- how do we do it in a way that doesn't, you know, cross boundaries, mm-hmm. doesn't make them feel unseen, mm-hmm. doesn't make them feel like we're diagnosing them? You know, mm-hmm. I, I know, especially with parents, you know, they want to help, but sometimes yeah. they do it in a way that almost... You know, it makes it makes the children, it makes the partner, it makes whoever almost not even want to address it anymore. Yeah. So, is there a right way? Um, I think yes, there is a right way. Not one right way, but I think if we talk about basic foundations of helping, the first thing is to take off that problem-solving hat and to mm-hmm. just listen in the beginning, and that's a very hard skill to do. Uh, one of the seminars I teach around taking care of major mental illness like schizophrenia is a technique called LEAP. Mm. You need to be certified in LEAP to train LEAP, but one of the, LEAP is an acronym for listen, empathize, agree, and partner. Um, and the first step in LEAP is listen. And I and when we give this uh, workshop around listening, we spend maybe half the workshop, and this is with expert mental health professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, who are already trained in this to teach them even to go to a higher level of reflective listening. And we have to do role plays over and over to get to that level of re- reflective listening. Now that's for a mental health provider. At the societal level, instead of saying, you know, hey, you look depressed, or hey, you know, uh, I think you need to work out, or I need to work on this, maybe the first thing to do is, you know, hey, do you want to talk? Mm. Is there anything you want to talk about? And uh, sometimes the answer is, no, no, I'm fine. I'm very fond of planting a seed uh, and letting that seed grow. Because sometimes as care providers, friends, family, and so on, we're rushed to make a difference in this person's life. And if we rush it too fast, you're going to be the, you want to be the turtle and win the race, right? Mm. The tortoise and win, win the race. And so you plant the seed, you know, I'm, I'm here if you want to, anytime. Uh, they may reach out to you in a few days or a few hours or a few weeks. And then when they reach out to avoid, again, problem solving, I think it's to listen and to kind of, even without being a diagnostician, just think about how serious this sounds to you. And if it sounds serious, you can say, you know, it's not wrong to seek the care of an expert. Do you want me to help you look for an expert and and maybe book an appointment and maybe support you in that first appointment? And if that happens, to try to fall back to that role you were originally. I, I too often see mothers or spouses and so on becoming nurses and doctors, which is what not what you need. Even when treatment has begun, have you taken your medication? Did you go to your therapy session? Did you exercise three times a week like the doctor said? Maybe it's twice a week this week. Who, I mean, they started. And, you know, getting into that role makes the whole conversation around healthcare and suddenly the caregiver's turned into a nurse. Absolutely. Which is not good for the, the client or the person suffering. It's not good for the caregiver. The better thing is once you've gotten the community involved, the, the healthcare community, to take a step back and go back to that role you were, the mother, the friend, the, the spouse, the, mm. the child, um, and live that role mm. uh, with empathic, supportive listening. It's funny because I hear this happen a lot in relationships. Mm. That dynamic kind of ends up becoming about 
either the man or the woman wanting to quote unquote support by solving the person's yeah. problem. Usually when, the man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we won't get it's into. A, it, no, but it's a very, it's a very. I mean, not to be stereotypical, but it is a very male thing. It you know, is. That, that it, Mr. It, fix it hat. Exactly. Yeah. And all a woman wants in this specific yeah. case is just listen to me. Right. Like, I don't want an answer. Yeah. I just want you to listen. And that's where the tension starts because you know this is him showing love and mm-hmm. this is her just wanting to be heard. Right. Um, but on this note, I mean, I, 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 I appreciate what you said about this idea of listening. Um, and it's amazing because I'm, I'm a true believer in the act of listening. It's amazing how little we do it. It's, it really is. Yeah. It really is. Because I feel like when it comes to listening, a lot of people listen to respond mm-hmm. versus listen to just be there. I remember I went through one of the toughest times in my life last mm. year. And my best friend, instead of trying to tell me what to do, she literally sat there and cried with me. Mm. That's what she did. That was her role. And that's what you needed. In that's that all moment. I needed. Yeah. And then her her contribution was, what can I do to help you? Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you need to go do this. Right. Or you need... It, that was it. And it was the best thing that I needed. Yeah. At, especially at that time. And I've said this a few times, but you know where that starts? Where? With yourself. Because, you know, we, we said how how little we do this, how little we listen. Think about it. How little do we listen to ourselves uh, when... And that's the, that's what leads to burnout because we're not listening to our body speaking to us, and in fact, the, the that voice in our mind that like I need a break, I need to rest, and so on, and then the other voice is like, no, tough it out, or no, 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 here's here's the way to fix it. Mm. Um, and so I think practicing a little bit of I know this is going to sound cliche, but self compassion, yeah, really, I mean, the inner reflects the outer, yeah, and so. Um, I remember once I was uh, speaking to someone I'd met during travel and mm. I wasn't playing a psychiatrist role, but, you know, someone I'd, I'd seen at the same place I traveled to a few times. And um, uh, they were telling me how their mental state, uh, weren't diagnosed with a mental illness, but had affected their body in a certain way. They developed some kind of uh, autoimmune illness. And I, you know, I thought about it and we were talking before the we started recording about poetry and, mm. you know, I'm, uh, I, you know I, I find my love of literature and poetry informs even how I speak to, to patients or other human beings. And I thought about it for a second. I said, hey, you know, what if, what if those autoimmune soldiers in your body that were, that were attacking your uh, muscles and nerves and, and leading to pain and so on, what if we conceptualize them as they were just good soldiers for the king? And they had noticed that something had invaded the king's territory. In, th- in your case, chronic, um, unmitigated stress. Mm. And they, they realized that there's something on the battlefield. And these soldiers have been born and bred and trained for one thing and one thing only. Protect the king at all costs. Mm. At all costs. Even if I have to destroy the battleground. Mm. Right? And so had you actually practice some self-compassion and some stress relief, those soldiers, the autoimmune soldiers, which were destroying your muscles and nerves and so on, might have retreated back to their their barracks mm. and said, well, okay, we'll, we'll fight another day. We don't need to burn the battleground in order to kill this, uh, this enemy that we can't see, mm. which is stress. Now, that's very poetic and philosophical, but if you think about it, uh, now, you know, part of what he developed might have been genetic and, and medical. But there's no question, it's been shown across different fields of medicine that chronic unmitigated stress increases all sorts of, you know, uh, physical illness, Mm -hmm. diabetes, hypertension, uh, even cancer. uh, Patients with cancer who have less stress uh, recover faster, respond to chemotherapy faster and so on, all across because there's a biological aspect to stress. 
coming back to how this started is if we practice that self-compassion, then that's a teaching tool for practicing compassion with others. Yeah. But how can I practice compassion with others when I'm not compassionate with myself? 100%. 100%. It's interesting. I I read something recently that our uh, physiological reaction and neurological reaction to stretch to stress is an actual 90 second cycle. Mm -hmm. And if we actually allow ourselves to go through that 90 second cycle, as opposed to resisting it, because Mm -hmm. resistance prolongs it, because you're not letting your body do what it naturally wants to do, which Mm -hmm. is protect you in that instance. Um, I found that really interesting. But on this notion, because you talked about poetry, I'm a creative too. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of writing. Um, I'm in the field of creativity. A lot of people, especially in our field, were a tad dramatic, but we talk about this um, correlation between pain Mm -hmm. and creative expression Mm -hmm. and the role that it plays and how it almost informs on on that. Mm -hmm. And um, in some cases, it has a tendency to drag out really serious situations. And I'm wondering, is there a correlation? Because if we're talking about, you know, philosophers, these were people that glorified pain and depression in a way, mm-hmm. you know, Van Gogh cut off his own ear and right. he and he made his most beautiful work and then right. he killed himself. Like yeah. it's just, you know, is there? There is a correlation. This has been studied in a lot of uh, a lot of studies. Um, there's a really good book about this called Touch with Fire by Kay Jamison, which talks about the creative um, spirit mm-hmm. and the links to mood disorders, specifically bipolar, more so than depression. Um some people make the mistake and romanticize this and say this is a must. Mm-hmm. In order for creativity to happen, pain must be there. And that's not true at all. Mm-hmm. But has there been a link between emotional pain uh, or cycling of mood and profound creativity? There is. Okay. But it's not a must. Um, one of the thoughts around this is that the periods of pain are, if you will, kindling the creative fire. And then once the pain is gone or you're starting to emerge from the pain, you you kind of, uh, like a dragon, blow out that creative fire mm-hmm. and, it, and it emerges into something. Mm-hmm. Um, like a cathartic kind of yes, release. Yes, but I think it would be a mistake, again, to say that's necessary. And, and some people kind of want to live that role, even though they're not um, someone who mood cycles or who has um, bipolar or depression and so on. They think, I have to be that in order to be creative. There's mm-hmm. lots of examples of people who are creative who are not going through major pain, other than the pain we all go through as humans. I mean... Uh, what's the first noble truth of Buddhism is that uh, life is suffering. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's truth to that. It is a noble truth. I think. Uh, and not not uh, you know uh, you don't have to be a Buddhist to believe that uh, at all. Um, it, it's it's a categorical uh, truth. But I think the way it's portrayed is too romanticized sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. You saw the Joker, right? I did. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I, I I didn't like it, and I spoke about it actually. Really? I, I mean, I liked it as a you know, cinematography and yeah. so on and, and acting, but um, in general, Batman movies have a very negative portrayal of mental health. Yes. In general. Um, so f- what happened in The Joker is that, well, people say, oh, no, it's a positive portrayal of mental health, which is, you know, society failed him. Uh, he was put in a you know mental institution. Uh, he never you know, got the care he needed from society and there, and therefore he became a criminal. Yeah. But for me, the underlying kind of unconscious message is if you don't take your meds and if you don't conform in society, then you will become a criminal Correct. and psychiatry is bad. And uh, it's justified. And it's justified. Yeah. And a lot of the, the kind of the Batman, you know, like if you look at Harley Quinn, mm. she was the Joker's therapist, right? And then... Oh um, God, I forgot that. Yeah. Yeah. And then she turned evil. And then uh, if you look at... Uh, 
the, the Christopher Nolan Batman uh, one, uh, the Batman Begins, I believe. The mm -hmm. psychiatrist is the evil. He was using psychopharmacology. Oh, wow. Right? He's, the, the, the Himalayan flower he got from the... Yes, yes, and yes. And he yes. turned it into something he would blow and it turned into the scarecrow. Yes. So it was basically psychopharmacology. It was some kind of hallucinogen. So it, the Batman series generally... I, I love it, by the way, as... A, as uh, entertainment. Entertainment, but it generally portrays mental health in a negative light. Mm, good yeah. to know. Yeah. Um, I, I want to be conscious of time because I know you've been... I'm, You've been so generous with us, so thank you so much. Um, but I want to end on something interesting, and I'm okay. glad you referenced the the pharmacology aspect of uh, of Batman. So obviously, we grew up in a world where you know crack is whack and mm -hmm. drugs are bad for you, mm -hmm. and and this notion of even being in environments that promoted drugs is not something that is culturally accepted mm -hmm. or encouraged. Uh, but now we live in an age where there are countries all over the world that are not just legalizing, um, I would call them natural drugs like mm -hmm. marijuana or, or weed or soft drugs. Yeah. Soft drugs. Mm. We've gone into, there are some countries that are actually uh, using um, uh, mushrooms mm -hmm. and MDMA, which uh -huh. is a form of ecstasy from what I understand, to treat. MDMA is ecstasy. It is ecstasy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It's just the, 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 the MDMA is the scientific name or the, the acronym for the scientific name and ecstasy is the street name. Right. Yeah. So they are talking about micro using these drugs as a micro dosing treatment program to treat antidepressant, mm -hmm. uh, to treat depression and anxiety. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's strange. Like, how, like is, that, is there any validity to something like that? Right. Are we going backwards? Were we wrong initially? Well, okay, so so it's a very broad topic. Let me try to summarize it very quickly. Yeah. The only two drugs that have been legalized in most societies are probably the worst two drugs for us. Alcohol and nicotine or tobacco. Ah. Okay. Uh, those are legalized. Tobacco is legal in almost every country in the world mm -hmm. and alcohol is legal in most countries in the world. And both are probably some of the worst drugs for you. Mm -hmm. So the reason I bring this up is legalization doesn't always mean as a policy decision that it's something good for you. Sometimes it's just that a, that a governmental or societal system doesn't want to criminalize everything, mm -hmm. doesn't want to increase people in jail, uh, doesn't want to, or maybe wants tax benefits from you know, selling these vices or, or getting some tax benefits from these vices. And that's what happens with you know, cigarettes and, and uh, alcohol. Uh, there's no studies showing that any dose of alcohol is healthy. There, there used to be studies where, you know, okay, a small amount of red wine is actually healthy for the heart. A, a recent study in The Lancet, which is a famous medical journal, one of the most important, showed that there's zero benefits. Even small amounts of alcohol are unhealthy. Does that mean a person should never drink? Uh, and I'm not answering this as a from a cultural or Islamic perspective because we know the answer. Uh, I'm answering this from a healthcare provider perspective. No, that doesn't mean someone should never drink, but you have to realize that it's unhealthy. And there's no there's no dose of alcohol that's ever healthy. Yeah. There's no dose of uh, cigarettes that is ever healthy, even electronic cigarettes. So the decision to decriminalize marijuana or cannabis products in a lot of countries or to start research researching psychedelics doesn't mean that they're good for you. It just means that they don't want to criminalize it anymore, these societies. Uh, fast food is decriminalized and high sugary food drinks are decriminalized or not even they've never been criminalized yeah. in most societies but they're unhealthy for you extremely yeah um so again something being legal doesn't mean it's healthy so let's let's uh, okay fine let's Fair make enough. that um uh, point very clear okay cannabis let's speak specifically about cannabis and i know i'm going to get a lot of pushback <laughs> about this i have seen no evidence um, and I read widely and I go to a lot of conferences, I have seen zero evidence that cannabis has any positive effect in any field in neuroscience, in psychiatry or neuroscience, except for 
very specific forms of epilepsy, and FDA-approved drugs have been developed as derivatives of cannabis that are used in very specific forms of epilepsy. Other than that, chronic long-term use of cannabis has been shown to cause cognitive impairment and amotivational syndrome, and has not been shown to improve depression or anxiety any, in any way, except short-term when you're intoxicated with it. Long-term actually makes depression and anxiety worse for most people. Mm. So uh, now, does cannabis have uses in medicine uh, such as glaucoma and chronic pain and uh, cachexia, which is a very severe form of weight loss associated with cancer? Yes, and that's that's proven. And so uh, can there be positive uh, outcomes from uh, uh, molecular der derivatives of the cannabis plant? Yes, there can be. But so far, none very clear, even CBD, mm. uh, none very clear, at least in my field, in mental health. When it comes to the psychedelics, and psychedelics are a broad number of compounds, including psilocybin, which uh, is the active compound in psychoactive mushrooms, or LSD, which is a genetically, uh, sorry, uh, 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 synthetically uh, derived psychedelic in a lab lysergic acid uh, diethylamide, or MDMA, methyl deoxy methamphetamine, which is partially a hallucinogen psychedelic, partially an amphetamine. Um, they do show benefit in mental health conditions. And they were criminalized for a long time based on, it's a very long story, but uh, some very flawed research that happened in, in very famous in institutions, including Harvard, um, where researchers were you know, basically not designing studies well and there were negative outcomes. And so during the Nixon administration, it was it was banned, uh, even medical research into this. The Nixon administration, that means in the 70s? Yeah, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. So this is around the time that um, Timothy Leary at Harvard was doing research on LSD and the, the Good Friday experiments, very famous experiments. You can read about this in a great book by um, Michael Pollan called uh, uh, the How, How to Change Your Mind. It's the history of psychedelics, both historical and modern. Now there's a lot of research around psychedelics given in very specific medical doses with medical supervision being very helpful for treatment-resistant depression, for treatment-resistant OCD. And what I mean by treatment-resistant is that these are forms of depression that did not respond to the treatments we have today, like antidepressants or therapy or and so on, MDMA for trauma, PTSD, uh, showing tremendous benefit. Mm. And so uh, I am a supporter of the ongoing research of these compounds and deriving ways to use them that are non-addictive and um, medically supervised so that we can maximize benefit and decrease negative effects. Because that's really the, the mm -hmm. primary oath in medicine, which is to, to first of all, do no harm. And we know that any chemical compound we put into our bodies, including food, fat, sugar, and so on, uh, can, can do good and can do harm. And so Correct. how can we make sure through research that these compounds are being given in a dose, in a diagnosis, in a setting, and in a supervised way where we're maximizing, maximizing benefits and decreasing harm? Mm -hmm. uh, the problem with the gold rush, even in the business world now, because of some of these really amazing outcomes that have come out in some studies recently, including you know, universities like Johns Hopkins, Imperial College London, UCSF in San Francisco, uh, compelling, placebo-controlled, published research showing tremendous benefit. Uh, the rush has been to, okay, let's start using them. Mm. We didn't even do that with the COVID vaccine. I mean, we yeah. rushed the COVID vaccine because it was a worldwide crisis, but there were still placebo-controlled trials. Yeah. So you still need to go to the regulatory approval to minimize harm. So we yeah. can't rush the process. We still have to go through the process. I think they will come to market. And I think sooner than we think. I think MDMA will probably come to market 2024, 2025 uh, for use in PTSD therapy uh, in, in a supervised clinical setting. You can't take it home and take it. And I think probably psilocybin will come in the next 
three to five years to market in some kind of uh, way, because that's how advanced the studies are now in submissions to the FDA and the regulatory uh, agencies. And so in the business world, there is a big rush to in the pharmaceutical industry, but also in the treat industry. How can we utilize this and, and make a buck? Wow. Um, but you, but again, we, we talked about this earlier. You need the private sector because yeah. uh, it's not enough just to research it and to regulate it. How do you make it accessible uh, and how how do you make it accessible in a way that adheres to the regulation? And that it promotes uh, it promotes health. it promotes health yeah. versus suppresses. Exactly. Which is, I, yeah. I think, the biggest misconception. Yeah. Dr. Muhammad, thank you so much for your time. Thank I you. really appreciate it. It was such a pleasure sitting with you. Uh, honestly, I could sit with you for hours. Um, Pleasure's all mine, my friend. Thank you. It was truly a privilege. And I'd like to thank our audience for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could leave us some feedback and questions. We'll try to get back to you. And I hope you found something to consider.